Hey guys, welcome again to the Recovering Reality podcast where well, we just dissect recovery and all aspects of it on this podcast. I'm really excited today. I have a, a friend with me who's doing a lot of amazing things in the world of recovery. I have no doubt that many of you will be encouraged, inspired, uh, draw hope, all sorts of good stuff. So we are going to dive right in today. Uh, my friend with me today is Joe Turner, Big Joe, the recovery champion. How you doing, man? Doing good, brother. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. It's cold up here. I'm in Ohio. It's cold up here. You're in, you're in Kentucky, right? Yeah, I'm down here in the great state of Kentucky. It's just as frozen as Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> we got about, oh gosh, maybe eight inches of snow on the ground right now, but that's all right. Cool, man. Well, I know that there's a lot of people out there that are in the midst of struggling themselves, learn relapse, going back, family members, all sorts of things, and uh, all sorts of different things. And I know that you have spent and do spend, I mean, pretty much all your time um, in the world of recovery. And so I'm excited for you to just kind of share your heart and what's going on with you and to uh, – you know, as you know, this little area here, Kentucky, Ohio, West Virginia, this little region is is ground zero right here. It's as bad as it gets anywhere, so it's right in the heart of it, man. Um, so I appreciate you taking the time. Why don't you uh, Why don't you just tell tell the listeners um, a little bit of a little bit of your story and your background? Thirty-seven years old. Uh, when I was born, I was. Born right into a, an MC, and for everyone that doesn't know what an MC is, that's a biker gang. Uh, my father was the president, so in the very beginning of my life, it was, it was very, very rough. I mean, it's, it's everything. If, if anybody's watched the Sons of Anarchy, that's actually a very watered-down version of what a real uh, MC is, wow. what they do. Uh, it's actually a whole lot worse than what you see on TV. Um, you know, I grew up seeing drug deals going down, people getting hurt. I mean, I've heard, you know, I think my father cut people in half with shotguns. It's just the life I lived. I mean, literally, we had to fight to eat. You know, it was the world of the strong survive. Uh, we, you know, my mother, I think when I was about seven or eight, she decided to leave my father. Um, and ended up marrying one of the largest cocaine dealers in Central Kentucky back in the 80s and 90s. You know, and life didn't get any better. Uh, my stepfather ended up being arrested, put in prison three times. My mother would divorce him when he went in, but remarry him while he was still in, in you know, state incarceration. So I got the, the privilege of going to several uh, prison weddings. So if you've never experienced that, which I hope you don't, but it's a unique memories to have, let me tell you. I have not experienced that. Wow. Uh, but through this, the times that he got out of prison, there was domestic violence. Um, of course, he educated me on every known drug that there was, especially any that he could make money on. Um, I'd see my mother shoot my stepfather, actually in the head, um, and he survived. 
a bullet actually traveled uh, in between his skull and his uh, scalp and landed up in his shoulder. Uh, you know, I was there in the emergency room and just the kind of person I was, you know, here I was, I think I was 12 at the time, and I was laughing at him as they were pulling the bullet out. You know, looking back on this, going through the proper therapy and counseling, you know, I was I was kind of hoping the dude would die, honestly. Um, you know, when I turned, and this just went on, on and on. Constant filing, my mom was, was drinking were, all the and, time. And you were uh, 12 years old, you said, up at this point, you're 12 years old? Yes. Wow. Um, and this just kept on. I mean, it was, my mom drank all the time to do with my stepfather and just every time I asked her, like, why are you with this guy? Why why are you with him? And, you know, and I, I had all the issues of any young child, man or, you know, boy or girl thinking this guy was trying to replace my father. And, you know, I loved my father. I idolized him. I wanted to be just like him. You know, that's the reason why, you know, when I would go see my father, I think it was around the age of eight, anytime he would pass out, I would sneak over and take his old oyster bourbon and drink it. You know, that's what my father drank, so I wanted to be just like my dad, so that's what I was going to drink. So any chance I got, you know, I was drinking dad's bourbon, sneaking beer. You know, that started at the age of eight. Uh, and, and, of course, with my stepfather, I was introduced to cocaine between the ages of 12 and 13, marijuana. Uh, and that's just how, that was mine and his bonding experience. Anytime he, my mom would get on, I'm like, well, you need to spend more time with Joe. Well, that's how he spent time with me. Taking me on drug runs, showing me the ropes, the so-called family business, as he called it. Um uh, and this just went on, but I, I was I was in yeah, I was in Boy Scouts, I was in church. I always made good grades in school. But when I turned sixteen, my stepfather had a novel idea. You know, he said, Well you're sixteen, you got your license, and guess what? They can't put you in prison like they can me. So every Friday when you get out of school, I need you to drive up north and you're gonna pick up or you're gonna drop off a car and you're gonna pick up a car. He said, when you get back, as long as you know, and everything comes back the way it's supposed to, I'm going to give you $5,000 cash and a quarter ounce of cocaine. So I'm like, I'm 16, just got my first car with my first blazer. And I'm like, wait a minute, so I'm going to get drugs and money all at once? Yeah, count me in. So overnight, I instantly had money, drugs, and women. Thought I'd met the promised land. So I did all I did this all through high school, but the whole time maintaining good grades. Um, and, and my travels up there back and forth doing what he needed me to do. I've been shot, I've been stabbed. You know, but my stepdad always made sure I knew which strip joints to go into to get stitched up. You know, he always told me, Don't go to the ER. They're gonna call the cops, you're a minor. So I knew where to go, I knew who to talk to, and I would get stitched up. Sit back on my way. Main job was to get the car back on. Um, went that, went, did this. Um, graduated high school, went to college. Now, right, my senior year of high school, I I, I met a woman, uh, met a girl. Um, we're actually still married to this day. Wow. Um, yeah, we stayed together. She was a a good, good old country girl, as I guess you would say, naive. 
knew nothing about the world that I lived in, and my main reason for getting with her was, first, that she was extremely good-looking, and second off, she wouldn't be trying to do none of my dope. <laughs> I mean, just to be honest. Um, but she, I mean, if she fell in love with your classic, you know, bad boy. I, I had real long hair at the time. Today I'm bald, but at the time I had extremely long hair. I was the party guy. I was the one everybody came to. I'm the one everybody wanted to hang out with. I went on to college. I actually got a degree in sound engineering. Now, this whole time, still dealing drugs, uh, drinking nonstop. I mean, it wasn't, if I didn't have a fifth of wild turkey in my hand, I wasn't, I wasn't happy. You could put everything else aside. As long as I still had my wild turkey, I was a happy guy. Um, you know, we got married in 02. You know, I was able to, to pay for our first house. I put a $15,000 down payment, and that was nothing to me. I was working just to keep, to make everything look legit and still doing everything that I did. And, I mean, that just actually went on for years. You know, we ended up having a son. Uh, all my connections up north ended up drying up, rather through prison or death. So when the uh, opportunity arose to start going down south, you know, when the pipeline opened up between Kentucky and Florida, you know, I hopped right on that. Uh, by this time, I was actually, I had gotten out of the music industry because I still wanted to be in with my father, and my father had always been an electrician. So I'd actually went to go work with my dad, um, ended up getting my master's license in electric, and was working side by side with him. Uh, when 09 hit, uh, everything kind of fell apart. You know, the economy crashed, work went away. Um that's when I just mainly turned right back into being a drug runner again. And that's all I did. You know, the, the economy was crashing before all the banks started shutting down. I went in, got a business loan, told them I was going to start my own electric company. I needed two vans and a bunch of tools. So my credit was good. I've always had money in the bank, so they didn't have an issue. But what I did is I did go buy two vans, but the rest of the money I used to sponsor about 30 people to go down south. And we were off to the races. I paid for the doctors, the medication, everything. And I was off to the races. Um, that was when my love affair with opiates started. Until then, it was mainly, you know, cocaine and liquor. And so at this point, you are—you said it was about 2009. You said. Yeah. And you're you're about how old at that time? Uh, early twenties. Early twenties. Okay. Early mid twenties. Yeah, wow. I mean, we, I mean, it, it just kept going. I mean, that went on for two years, just that nonstop running. I was, I was in Florida twice a week, every week. And, you know, my, my wife had started dabbing a little bit here and there just to keep up with you. And now to interject quickly for people that might be listening that are saying, you know, the, the, the Kentucky, Florida pipeline, what, what is that? I mean, I, I'm fully aware because I, I mean, I was on the West Coast at the time, but I'm, I'm aware of exactly what that is. And anyone that's read the book Dreamland knows exactly what you're talking about. But elaborate quickly, if, if you would, on exactly that, that opiate boom, uh, what you're talking about happened in 2009? What, what began happening in the Midwest? 
what in, re- in, in Kentucky, Ohio, West Virginia specifically? What will start taking place? Well, in, in that region, that, that's where Big Pharma dumped the most painkillers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of the coal mines, the heavy manufacturing, the horse industry, uh, Big Pharma dumped. They still haven't been able to figure out how many painkillers. It's safe I mean, to it's, say tens of millions. If, to say the least. That's probably yeah. on the low end. Yeah. Um, and people just got addicted quickly. So there was a need. And what had happened is down in Florida, you had doctors you could go to, and as long as you had enough cash in your pocket, you could get bottles full of Percocet 30s, um, Xanax bars, um, Somas, Pilates, uh, Neurotins. I mean, all, all the big ticket items. Anything you want. Anything you want. As long as you had the cash in your pocket, you walked into a doctor, you could have a fake MRI, or you didn't even have to have nothing wrong with it. As long as you had the money, you was walking out with a prescription. Yep. Um, and I was smart enough to know this wasn't going to last forever. So I paid the doctors off to make sure they didn't keep any files on me or my people. Hmm. Um, believe it or not, when if you take down a case of moonshine and a bag of oranges, you can't get oranges in Florida. It's, it's a weird thing. But, uh, yeah, they, I know. Well, they ship them all out. It's, it's, it's crazy. Huh. Um, interesting. But, yeah, I mean, I would take, I had three different doctors I went between. Just so I wasn't in the same place every time because they were always watching them. And you had, you had pharmacists that were in on it. So you get you slide this. You know, I I pretty much bought brown envelopes out at the local Walmart here in Paris just because you had to hand, you know, envelopes full of money on top of what you were paying for to keep everybody's mouth shut. And in the midst of this, a a real heavy addiction grew for you personally? Oh, yeah. I was, I mean, like I said, I was, I mean, I was doing every bit of an eight ball or two a day of Coke and drinking a fifth or two a day. Before this started, so when I fell in love with opiates, um, I mean, I was—it's like it went from zero to ten million. I, you know, I did one or two, you know, Percocet thirties, and it went to ten to fifteen to twenty a day, like overnight. Um, and I wasn't going to stop. It wasn't going to happen. Nobody could stop me. I. You know, I've been, the cops knew what I was doing, but I had a couple cops on the payroll. Um, I'd get picked up and I'd be released the exact same night. Once again, money talks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, like I said, that only lasted for like two years, and then Florida shut all that down. Shut it all down. They came in, raided everybody. Um, everybody was running, you know, for the hills, scared to death. So... I, you know, I had what connections that I had, whether were locked up or running scared or dead. So I had to, I had to fall back and punt. I had been able to save up quite a bit of money and just went to work. But I, you know, I didn't want to work. I was by then I was on the fringes of society. I couldn't go back to being an electrician. Everybody knew what I was doing. As much as I thought I was hiding it, everybody already knew. So it was. I was back to doing, like, I was a bouncer at many different strip joints in Lexington. I was uh, running, you know, I was a repo man. I was, you know, worked at buy here, pay here a lot, just so I could get paid cash. 
and my addiction just kept growing. I was buying and buying and buying as much as I could. I was buying more than I was making. And by this time, what are you, somewhere around 30? I was like late 20s, early 30s. And, and, and what kind of, what, what year is this to bring people up to speed on the timeline? Oh, Lord. I'm going to say it's like 2010, well, 2012. Wow. So this is just six, seven years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the end. We're getting close to the end of my addiction. You know, I, I'm, I'm kind of speeding through it. You know, at the, at the end of it, we, I was the guy that was robbing from his mom, was kicking in doors, would call up dope boys and tell them to come meet me, and then I'd hide behind a door in a bush and wait for them to walk by, and I'd jump out and knock them out and take everything they had. I mean, it, it, it didn't matter. Sometimes I'd put my knee in their chest and take them, you know, when they wake up, I'll kill you. And lo and behold, one day, I didn't know where I, I had gotten sloppy. I was stealing payroll checks from the buy here, pay here lot. I was stealing my mom's ATM card. We had lost the house. We had lost the cars. We were bouncing in between my wife's family and my family's homes, taking my son in tow. Um, and this whole time, man, I swore that I would never do to my kid what was done to me. You know, I wanted to be that better parent. I didn't, I didn't want him to grow up like I went up, but addiction had me so wrapped that I wasn't even seeing what I was doing to my own kid. And lo and behold, one day I was walking down the street, and cops swarmed me. They, uh, you know, they said, Mr. Turner, we've got, and they actually had four warrants for my arrest. And I took off running. I got back to my apartment, and I guess in the madness thought that that was going to keep them from arresting me. But they chased me down. They caught me right there at the door. Um, a fight ensued. I ended up, you know, fighting three different cops, and I was whacked out of my mind, so I ended up hurting them. But I forgot about this little handy-dandy device they have on their shoulder that's called a radio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they called in back up, and by this time my wife had opened the door about the time two more cops showed up, and then my son saw me getting beaten days by the police. You you fought the law, and the law won. Oh, yeah, they win every time. Yes, they <laughs> win every time. Yes, they do. Uh, you know, my luck had run out. The money had run out. All the favors were gone, and uh, it was over. You know, I went to jail. Um, the first time I went to court, you know, my wife had even said she was done. Once that happened, she said she was done. Um, she wouldn't, you know, when I first wrote her from the, the first holding cell, she wouldn't even send me pictures of her. She sent me pictures of my son. And that was it. But the first time I went to court, the the deal was 20 years. State time, flat. Not, no 35, not no 85. It was 20 years flat. They had me on the uh, back to hearing, uh, monitoring, you know, of course, I had position of course, instruments, you know, the whole nine. A burglary charge, all of them. Um, you know, I told my wife just to go on, be done with me, move on. She stayed in jail, and I, I couldn't stop fighting, so after about my first month in jail, they had me in isolation. 
I was only allowed out of my cell one hour a day, and that was to shower and watch a little bit of TV. Um, I slowly repaired my, you know, my relationship with my wife from jail. She started to come see me, uh, but with what my son saw at the last time I was arrested, he had to go to therapy. He couldn't even come see me. It just it got real hard, man, and I was I was ready just to take my 20 years and be done with it, ready just to go resign to my life. Um, I was never asked to go out to a meeting, you know, AA or NA meetings inside jails, never asked to go out to church, because they didn't want me to intermingle with other inmates. One day, uh, in fighting my case, I was trying to fight it. You know, I wasn't taking 20 years, but in a string of court cases, they they weren't coming off 20 years. Um, and I'd been shipped around to different facilities, being drugged back to Bourbon County to fight my case. And then one day out of nowhere, some woman showed up, told me that she was a representative from drug court. Said that she uh, said that I was the perfect candidate for drug court if I was willing to accept it. I was like, well, what is it? I said, I've heard the, the jailhouse chatter about it, but what is it? And she told me it was, you know, according, uh, you know, court, you know, it was a court treatment program on the street. You know, I had to go to meetings, had to go to court hearings, had to do all these different things to keep compliant. And if I if I did good, then I would not have to go to prison. And I stopped her and I said, "Well, you mean I get to get out of jail?" I'm like, "Yeah, well, you'll get to get out and do drug court." And I'm like, "All right, sign me up. I get to get out." In my mind, still at the time, I was like, well, I'll get out. I'll catch another plug real quick, and I'll be off to the races. I'll leave the state. They'll never find me. Then um, it wasn't four days. It was four days after I had that meeting with her. I was asked to come out. Wanted to know if I wanted to go to church. And there inside the jail I was in. I was like, well, yeah, if you're going to let me around to other people, let me out of this cell. Well, it ended up being a, an AA meeting. And I actually met a, the guy that was running it. It was somebody that was very well respected in the community. He grew up just like I did, but he turned his life around. In the community him, now, outside of jail, he came in to do it. Yeah, yeah, he brought the okay. meeting inside the jail. Yeah. Uh, well, me and him connected real quick. I mean, he grew up the same way I did. Um, he turned his life around. and I mean, he knew me. He knew my father. Um, and he, me and him, just, we just connected. So that was that was the first time I was ever introduced, introduced to any kind of recovery. And now here's the series of events. This is how God worked in my life. This is where it gets. This is where God starts stepping in. So, I you know I got this opportunity to go to drug court. Then I got took to my first AA meeting. And then it was a week after that I got a letter from my wife letting know that my son is ready to come see me. That's awesome. So I'm like, oh, this, you know, great. You know, the day that the visitation was come up, they let the barber come in and get me shaved up, looking nice to see my son. And, you know, and it was it was the first time that I think my son had ever seen me tear up a little bit. You know, I was raised, you don't show, you don't cry. Um, and I, I was so excited to see him. But at the end of the visit, he said, Dad, can I give you a hug? And I was like, son, they're not going to let you touch me. You know, well, the best we can do is talk on this phone between plate glass. 
And my son got up on the glass and commenced to beating on it and screaming, saying all he wants to do is give me a hug. You know, that broke me. That a child would love a wretch like me. And he showed me that that moment right there that I had done exactly to him what I swore that I would never do to anybody. And, you know, they talk about the psychic change, the spiritual experience. That's when these things started happening. Mm. And, you know, I, I kept getting asked to go out to the AA meetings, um, kept going back to court. Of course, the prosecuting attorney was not wanting me to get out of jail. But I ended up getting drug court. The deal was is I had to go do 90 more days in max, then go do 90 days treatment, then do 18 months drug court, then do five years probation. And if I mess any of that up, then I had to go pull my 20-year sentence at day zero. None of my street time would count. Wow. Let me let me ask you a question in the midst of all this. So you grew up in what I think would be safe to say a you weren't really set up for victory in your life, the environments that you grew up in. No, not um, at all. You took right to it. Um, and went full bore, and we're right in the middle of, you were ground zero, right in the middle of the mess, uh, the opioid epidemic, right when it was, you know, the fire was raging the biggest. And you're in jail now, and you're just kind of seeing how you can play the system, and you talked about how a spiritual experience began. Now, say somebody's listening right now, and Maybe they've been sober for a week or two or a month, but they haven't had any profound experience. They're white-knuckling it. Or maybe they've been knowing they should get clean and sober but can't or whatever. If you would, elaborate just a tiny bit on that. Explain what exactly that transition looks like, feels like on the inside. So you've got this mentality that's been ingrained in your entire life, and a shift starts to take place inside. What, what, what was that like? That was the worst internal struggle I've ever had in my life. Sounds it was. Right. I can relate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you know, like you just said, man, I grew up and I was doing the only thing that I knew, and it was the first time in my life that I'd seen that there was something wrong with it, but I didn't know what, how, when, or where. I just, I knew there was this little small quiet voice in me letting me know, like, look, you've got to change. And there's people willing to help you change. And and you hard-headed jerk, you need to start listening to them. You, you, you've got to change, man. If you really love that kid, if you really love that kid, then you've got to put as much effort into changing as you have being this beast, being this monster, this devil. And, I mean, dude, I mean, it was, it was almost like I went through another form of DT. Mm-hmm. I'm in the level of nightmare. DTs? Yeah, a fool. I mean, that's the only way I can describe it. That's a good description. I mean, sitting there and you, 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 you're sitting there arguing with yourself so bad. I mean, I would start sweating. I'd have nightmares. I would have all these things. It was like I was literally reliving all the, the, the misdeeds and all the sins and all the horrible things I had done. And it was just like everything was coming back on me. And, I, you know, today I look at that as... 
it's my addiction trying to say, look, no, you've done all this and you can't change. But there was this voice. There was this, these moments that would come that would show me hope. Mm-hmm. It would put the right people in my path saying, look, if they could change, I know I can. Yeah, I, I emphasize that to no end with people early on. So, look, you've you got to be around people that understand it. you got to be around community. You have to listen to other people that have been through it. You, you, you're going to find yourself in the, in, in the stories and realize that you're not alone in the midst of this, and change is way more possible than you think. Oh, it's extremely possible. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, you know, I, I went and did treatment, um, and I acted up in treatment. I ain't gonna lie. I was in treatment for ninety days. That first two months, they probably threatened to kick me out twice. But it was that last thirty days um, that the counselor actually started getting through to me. That I started seeing how the steps could play in my life, how things could change, how it just it just started clicking. You know, I just, you know, I, maybe I was doing the whole thing like they say, is fake it till you make it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I finally started making it. Um, came home, and do, I, it's just like my my life had changed. You know, I literally had to go back into the, the, the same the same apartment complex I used to do all my dope in because it was the only place that would rent to me and my wife. But I did drug court. I didn't fail a drug test. I didn't get any more trouble. I actually walked drug court in 18 months. Wow. Awesome, and, now, when I got out of drug court, you know, and I stayed in the steps, now, the guy that's my sponsor, even to this day, was the guy that came into the jail to my first AA meeting. He's still your sponsor today. He's still my sponsor to this day. That's awesome. Which is, uh, so this started, this change started taking place what, five, five, six years ago? Yeah, five years ago. A little bit over five years ago now. A little bit over five years ago. Wow. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, I was working with him when I got out of drug court, you know, I went to a piece, I went down on a river because that was my first time in life getting scared. I didn't know, you know, I was, I didn't have drug court over my head. The only thing I had over my head was paper. Now, paper's never scared me before. Paper blows away with the wind. So I literally went in three days of prayer meditation down by a river. I asked God, what do you want out of my life? What am I supposed to be doing now? Because I know what I wanted to do. Every, anytime I run out on my own self-will, I'm going to destroy and, and tear stuff up and burn things to the ground. I stayed there for three days. My wife brought me water. And finally, I got a message that was to help my people. Now, me and God got a joking relationship. I had to look up and go, okay, what does that mean? Do I go build a hut, dig a well, move to Haiti, go feed the homeless? What do I do? So as we're taught, I took it to my sponsor. And my sponsor told me, all right, if God's given you a message, we're taught through the steps to step out on faith. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. you know. And I was working as an electrician again at a factory there in Paris. Um, and just out of nowhere, um, people started reaching out to me for help. Like, Joe, we saw you change your life. How did you do it? So I started talking to people, getting them into meetings, helping them get to treatment. And then a group of people came to me and said, well, let's start a group. And we just started up what was at the time was called Recovery Warriors. And it was supposed to be just this community um, involvement group, addiction awareness, education, stuff like that. And in three short years of doing this, we've had to change our name to Recovery Champions. But now we're nationwide. 
this has turned into a full-time job for me, and we have a network of people all over America that help people no matter what they've got going on. We don't care if you've got everything or nothing. We're going to help you find the right kind of care that you need. We work with therapists, counselors, doctors. I've become a nationally certified interventionist, recovery coach, addiction specialist. I travel all over the country doing interventionings, talking to kids. Um, and this this is my life today. It's 100% service. It's, I, I mean, I take phone calls at all hours of the day and night, people reaching out needing help. Powerful, man. Wow. That is quite the story there. Now, maybe you can relate to this. One of the, the things, I, 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 I work, you know, part-time in a treatment center, and I, I do recovery coaching myself, and I speak to a lot of people early on, and one of the biggest things that I see is there's a good amount of people that have a hard time connecting to this God thing, right? Uh, yeah, well, I don't know about this and that. Maybe for you and um, what, what would you say to somebody who maybe is going back and forth on relapsing, can't get sober, is early in recovery, but it's not really recovery. It's more they're just white-knuckling it. What, what would you say to somebody who's having a real hard time connecting with God? Because you started talking about hearing God, that connection to God in your story, and from from the sound of it, it was that season of time in your life that radically transformed and set you on a completely diff- different trajectory so what would you say to encourage somebody that's struggling with that piece? Because I find it pretty common with people. They struggle with that. Well, my, the the gentleman, which is, became my sponsor, he told me one simple thing, and it struck home with me. As, as an addict, we always fight. If you're in addiction, alcoholism, whatever, we're always fighting, one way or another. He said, but when, he said, when Jesus got nailed to the cross, the battle was over. It's, it, we won. It's it's end game. You don't have to fight no more. So what are you fighting? If the war is over and we have won, then what are you really fighting against? And then I had to sit back and look. It was self. I was fighting myself. There wasn't nobody against me because we're all out there thinking, well, the cops are against me, my family, the courts, society, the government, whatever. But it's all a lie. Actually, everybody's out there trying to help us. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and when Jesus was nailed to the cross, man, that, that was the end of it all. We don't have to fight anymore. All we got to do is go and clench your hands and open up your arms. And let it change. Quit fighting. Let the love come in. Let the mm-hmm. passion, let the dream, let the hope take over. Is when we do that, that's when we can see the real blessing. We can see a life that will change every way we've ever looked at anything. If somebody would have told me five years ago that I would have the life that I have today, the way I grew up, I'd have probably punched you in the mouth. But it's true. You know, we're never going to become the person we wanted to be. Sitting there in front of the TV watching Scooby-Doo and the Jetsons, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And we're never going to become the person everybody else wants us to be. Mom, grandma, grandpa, the priest, our teachers. That's not going to happen. But if if you decide, if you make the choice that you want to change, that you want to try something different, you can become the person you deserve to be. 
When we're born, God has got an inheritance set forth for us, set in stone. It's there waiting on us. And it's, it's the choices we make through life. And what we do is if we get to go claim it or not. To lay the dope down and go claim your inheritance. It's there. It's yours. It's waiting on you. All you got to do is go get it. It's real simple. It's powerful, man. It's, it's the paradox. When, when, when the topic of surrender comes up, most people equate surrender to surrendering to defeat. But this is rather the exact opposite. This is a surrendering to victory. Amen. I mean, this is surrendering to success. Mm-hmm. We all grow up and we all want to be successful. Whatever that looks like. And all you got to do is surrender and be successful. I know that's a crazy way of putting it, but it's, there's no truer words can be said. Mm-hmm. Call it a, uh, it's a, it's a paradoxical paradise. It is. It is. <laughs> it truly is. <laughs> You got to live it to understand it. It's hard to understand on the outside looking in, but on the inside, it's it makes a lot of sense. Wow. Well, anyone that's listening, regardless of any spot they're in with their family, their personal lives, listening on behalf of hope for a sibling, whatever, I know they're going to draw an incredible amount of hope. It's um, it's a wild story, man. But um, why don't you? Why don't you take a couple minutes here now and tell people uh, if they're interested in getting connected or you talked about this network that you have. Elaborate in a little more detail about exactly what it is you you got going on now, man. Well, what we do now is we have uh, – and uh, when, when I tell people I have unlimited resources, I mean that. It doesn't matter if you have nothing, which is – I mean literally nothing. If you're homeless underneath the bridge or if you're in a penthouse in the nicest place in the world, we can help you get treatment. Uh, I work with many counselors, therapists, treatment centers, IOPs, OPs all across America. And that way if nobody where anybody reaches out to me, we can help them get help. Um you can you can go to um the webpage is recoverychampions.org. You can do Facebook, look up Recovery Champions, you can go to um Instagram, you can go to LinkedIn, we're there. No matter where you are, what you've got going on. You can find us, and we'll do everything we possibly can to help you. Powerful, and you have a you have a, a number. You said that they can reach you, or it plugs into somebody, right? Yeah, it's eight five nine seven zero seven thirty eight sixty four. Powerful, man. Um, That's awesome, and I would encourage you guys to reach out. I'm telling you, there's a much more beautiful there, – there's there's far more hope and grace available to live a beautiful transformation than people can even begin to realize. It's what God will do for one, he does, he does for another. Um, what do you see coming up for yourself here, coming up in the next five? What, what do you see going on for the problem? You know, if you wouldn't mind ending with this, what do you see coming up, you know, with the problem that is currently still going on in America and for yourselves and your involvement in it? Well, what I see going on for the problem is we are able to, with the movement I see happening with the recovery community, we're having a network of people that are all joining together in love and hope to help fight this epidemic that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. And I see a change happening. Whether through recovery, through harm reduction, 
whatever that case may be, um, it, it's there. There's hope. There's love now. Where there was nothing to turn to, you know, the resources have changed in the last 10 years. And there's there's more there's more centers being opened up. There's more day centers available. There's more IOPs available than ever before. So if you ever thought that you couldn't get help, there's tons of help out there. Yeah. It's very true, man. Well, I want to thank you for your time, me personally, and thank you on behalf of a lot of people listening who I know are going to grab a lot of inspiration and hope from this man. And uh, is there any 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 last anything you want to share, man, before we before we wrap up? If you're out there and you're struggling, or you have a family member that you know is out there in active addiction, man, be their voice. Don't don't go quietly into the night. Don't let this take anybody else. We're losing too many. Mm-hmm. Speak out. Reach out. Reach out to recovery champions. Reach out to my brother here. Reach out to somebody. You don't have to suffer alone anymore. That's the the addict, the alcoholic, or the families. There's there's so many people out there that are ready to reach out and, and help you. Let them. Powerful man, it's awesome. I appreciate, I appreciate your time. Um, I look forward to connecting with you more in the future, man. And uh, yeah, man, I appreciate you being open and honest and sharing your story. Anytime, man. Anybody that ever wants to contact me, they can call the number eight five nine seven zero seven thirty eight sixty four, and I'm always there. I don't care if it's three o'clock in the morning. If you need me, call me. Beautiful, man. Beautiful. Well, for those of you listening, we appreciate you taking this little journey with us and plugging into the Recovering Reality podcast. Um, If you would like to contact Joe, obviously he gave all of the information to be able to contact him here. And if you are trying to get someone into treatment or trying to help someone plug in, um, he and his network can help you do that. So, We'll connect again in the future. I appreciate you guys listening, and thank you, Joe. I thank you, brother. It was an honor. I I really appreciate you letting me come on. Thank you. Absolutely, man. All right, guys, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. See you, buddy. Bye, brother. All right, we'll see you, man.